Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 102, listener feedback number five, recorded July 7th, 2013, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. Element OP.com. It's been a month, and we didn't have anything else to talk about, so that makes it a listener feedback show. Uh, it works for me. Uh, great to have you guys uh, submitting so much stuff that we can actually do this, and that's awesome. So here we go with our fifth listener feedback show. And with us to do that, as always, is the command line godfather, Mr. Christopher Neves. Hi, Chris. Hello, everyone in Internet land. I hope everyone had a good weekend. I'm feeling a little burnt. <laughs> Let's hope that's not literally burnt after fireworks. Um no, not fireworks, but sun. Yes. I'm a little lobstery, let's put it that way. And here to bring balance to the force, the yen to his yang, the gooey kid, Mr. Seth Anderson. Happy Independence Day plus three, everyone. <laughs> uh, you know, I got a little burnt too, and I did not shave until today because shaving sunburned skin is not fun. Ouch. So I just, I took a few days off from the razor and this morning everything was fine. Well, it started raining uh, last Monday here in Atlanta and hasn't stopped yet. So uh, lots of fireworks displays were rained out. Um, Other cases, the rednecks just went ahead with it and and did the fireworks in the rain. Um, So I didn't see any personally. My kids, as I mentioned earlier, are out of town and just kind of didn't seem like worth the effort to do it with them with them not around but uh, i did get to play the the uh, classic southern traditional game of is that fireworks or gunfire uh sitting in my living room <laughs> going what the what was that you know i live in a populated subdivision you know cul-de-sac um and it sounded like a war zone <laughs> all around me and it's like, you know no it's not supposed to happen in the cul-de-sac people uh well <laughs> welcome to georgia and Mark, you might not be a redneck anymore because the actual game is my gun is louder than those fireworks. <laughs> Let me prove it. It reminds me of that line in uh, Independence Day, the movie, uh, where the person on the news says that law enforcement officials are reminding Los Angelinos not to fire weapons at the uh, alien visitors. You might start an interstellar war accidentally. It's, you know, mm-hmm. Los Angeles isn't the right. only place you'd have to say that. Right. I've been, Man, have you heard they're working on a sequel to Independence Day? I did. And it's it's sort of, uh, I thought it was interesting. I read uh, Roland Emmerich. I read an article he did, uh, uh, an interview he did talking about it. He said it's going to be both immediately after and in present day. And the way they're going to do that is that like, maybe this was the second wave launched immediately after the first wave attack, but because they're traveling at sublight speeds or, or relativistic speeds, it took them 30 years to get here, but it's the next day to the aliens. So they meet a populace who has had 30 years now, or not that long, 20 years, I guess, with, uh, with alien technology to pick it apart and learn how to use it, even though they right. essentially launched the invasion one, day one, day two. So I thought that was an interesting take oh. on it. That is a very interesting well, and, spin. Curious yeah, to see if it and that would make the off. scout ships that they found launch like the day before that. Something so like that. It yeah. kind of, you, you could argue that fits into the symmetry of the movie. Right. So, 
Yeah, so yeah, the the Area 51 ship was launched a day or two before the invasion, then the invasion, and then wave two of the invasion. Although you kind of have to do, uh, you have to throw away that line where the president says it's their whole civilization traveling at once. You have to pretend he didn't say that. Um, But that's okay. Well, no, he just didn't understand exactly what he was seeing. (laughs) So he simply misquoted the aliens and... uh, Something like that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, yeah, it was kind of like how we have our American civilization and then there's the Russian civilization. So competing, you know, forces, I guess, maybe. So in continuing my week of, of watching movies I can't watch when my kids are around, uh, yesterday I watched all three Transformers movies back to back. And I've never done, I've seen them all, but I hadn't watched them all back to back before. And when you do that... It's amazing how many uh, plot points and uh, uh, anachronisms and uh, fold time folding back on itself you see. Um, right. That bad, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was I've terrible. I've never done that yet. Like, for example, spoilers, by the way. If you haven't seen these movies, fast forward about two minutes. Um, at the, the first one, like an important central plot point of the, the movie is that uh, the Transformers are vulnerable to cold right so they keep megatron on ice uh to keep him uh docile and and the way he's rescued is they heat him up and the way they they uh subdue bumblebee is with co2 and they make him cold movie number two oh and at the end they drop him into the laurentian abyss because it's cold down there movie number two right oh uh next plot point his the the all spark was merged with megatron spark thus destroying his spark okay so, movie number two, a team of repair robots just drive down into the Laurentian Abyss like it's no big deal. Um, it's cold down there, but so what? And then they fix a robot with a, with a spark gone, like it's, oh, we'll just replace that. No big deal. And then they go to space. How cold is it in space? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so <laughs> we've totally done that. And then, okay, so Prime has his spark gone out. And the only thing that can fix a spark is the matrix of leadership. But wait, they just fixed Megatron Spark without it. So what's the deal yeah. there? The only thing that can fix an Autobot Spark yeah, is the it. matrix of leadership. They, you did oh. not hear that word, I think, when you watched it. You got an edited remix that took that word out, Mark. You got to pay really close attention. <laughs> and then the There's th- that half a millisecond break. That, that's the point. <laughs> And then there's even more on incongruities when you move on to the third ones. Like, for example, in the second one, because the technology was better, suddenly the robots were breathing. All right? They weren't breathing in the first one. But now they're in space on the moon, breathing. <laughs> With, like, smoke, br- frost, and, and it just, it was, it was nuts. Anyway. Yeah, it my whole thing with the second movie is Megan Fox character went from a tough lady to a, a whiny little girl. And I just like, what? You know, you just totally destroyed the reason every boy in America wanted to see that movie. So, (laughs) and in uh, the third one, when Megan Fox isn't there, they say, well, you know, she dumps him are totally believable. All right. Right. It's the unbelievable part was that they were ever together. Totally believable that she dumped him. What's unbelievable is that he got another equally hot foreign chick like a month later. So that's just well, it had to be foreign because everybody in America knew him. So. <laughs> Sorry. 
All right, so that's my spin on the Transformers movies. Um, if you're going to watch them, just enjoy the robots killing each other. Don't try to actually think. Um, and I, I have a bad habit of doing that. You, you have to go into certain movies without thought. You have to kill that part of your brain. And I forget to do that sometimes. Yeah. And by certain movies, we mean 98% yeah, of the most made of in them. America. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you don't really want to think in those and uh, or it can be bad. Uh, so apparently Dowdle doesn't like the Transformers. <laughs> he says, I'd rather hear about Lindsay Lohan or the Care Bears. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so Seth, uh, did you spend any time at Walmart this week? Man, against my better judgment, I went to the Walmart here in Canton to get my tires rotated. And one, I was surprised it only took them 30 minutes because I was like the only one there. And two, they broke my hubcap. And I'm in the process of proving to them that they broke my hubcap to get it replaced. And it's not a, I remember there was a time if you had a problem, if you just mentioned that you might've had a problem to somebody at Walmart, they would take care of it at least equal to your problem, if not go above and beyond. And now it's a good thing I work for lawyers because I might need to get them involved because they're just like, oh, well, we looked at the tape and blah, blah, this and blah, blah, that. And I'm like, Look, if your guys are so careful, how come there's no valve covers on my valve stems? I mean, if you took those off and can't even put them back on, how do you know you put this thing back on right? But anyway, I was coming to church to do the podcast, and I was I happened to look over on the side of the road, and I saw, hey, there's my hubcap that came off my car yesterday. And so I got <laughs> it, and I was like... Well, it look, and I, oh, wait a minute. I see all it, half of it. Half of it is broke that holds it into the car. No wonder it came off. So... And of course, I, by the time I get a hold of a person there, everybody's gone for the day. So I got to try to reach someone who can, who has the authority to take care of it. That's so because Sam Walton has been dead him. 20 years now. And when the leader, the, the founder of a company dies, it falls apart. Uh, Apple probably won't yeah. even make it 20 years. Um, yeah. But it, it's sad because, you know, Walmart comes to town with their cheap knockoff limited selection and drives everybody else out of business. And then once that happens, they're like, oh, there's nobody else around that'll do this. So you have to accept our sub quality crap and performance. So it's kind of what we're stuck with. So I don't know if I will never i'm pretty sure i will go to walmart but i know i won't be going to this one as much well i'll probably have to go there several times to end up getting my hubcap replaced but after <laughs> that i don't know how much i'll be going there if you want to see an anti-walmart diatribe um go to netflix and look up the the documentary the high cost of low prices um it's a total spin uh documentary obviously crafted for the purpose of slamming walmart but they, they do make some interesting points and talk to, you know, like the, the mom and pop hardware store where Walmart comes in, offers a tenth of the selection, but at a tenth of the price and drives them and out a of business. a tenth of the quality. Right. Yeah, I don't know about that. Their, their, their stuff uh, can be good and can be bad. It just depends on what you got. Uh, but right. me, me being the capitalist that I am, yeah, I don't care. I honestly don't care if the big mega corporation cuts the 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 mom and pop shop out of business. Nobody misses the uh, carriage uh, wheel right. You know, nobody misses the gaslight operator. Nobody misses the uh, the steam engine operator. The, you adapt and you move on. New technologies, new uh, things change, and just stop whining about it and get on with your life. 
Well, and Nightstar points out, you know, we might miss the people of Walmart.com <laughs> without them. So, you know, obviously the Netflix uh, docu mockumentary did not take that into account. So have at the. Uh, I have never seen anything on the scale of people at Walmart, of all the Walmarts I've been to. But I certainly have no doubt, uh, no trouble believing that all of those pictures were actually taken of real people. Oh, oh, yes. I've. <laughs> I've seen some that I I have no doubt I could find at the people of Walmart if I had any desire to visit it myself. So, all right, off of yeah. Walmart. We're, we're, uh, let, let's get off that dead horse. <laughs> yeah, I, I no, don't I think, think uh, I don't think they'll be contacting us for sponsorship <laughs> anytime soon. Although, if they can, we can have some glowing reviews too. I, you know, as much as people complain about Walmart. Everybody has been to one this week, right? If you if you rounded up the entire population of the country, ninety percent of them has been to one this week. Uh, yeah, know. and I was um, I don't know if it was just Dallas or Texas, but they were doing percentage of gross of a supermarket, and Walmart was the far and away leader uh, in groceries. Like I think oh, yeah. Kroger was number two with almost half. Where I used to live, it was the grocery store. I mean, you know, now I live in a place where there's, I have to drive past two to get to a Walmart, but that's most of the time, that's not the case. They, they, they like little rural areas where they can run the thing. So anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've already turned off uh, a large chunk of the audience. We're going to get feedback now. I don't need to tune into a Linux podcast to hear about Walmart and yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, somebody likes us a little bit anyway uh seth found a, a link uh to our show at linuxlinks.com an article about podcasting and they uh, give us a glowing review five out of ten i'll take it yeah i was nothing. just it was just an honor to be mentioned um <laughs> you know that's i was like hey because i saw this article and i was like oh i wonder if we're on it because I was going to write the guy and say, Hey, have you heard of this podcast? But I clicked through and on page four, there we were everyday Linux. And I don't know. I just, you know, it was just pretty cool. Four so. of four, by the way, it's not four of right. 20, four of four. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and read because it, it's only a couple of paragraphs. <laughs> read the, the, the thing. Everyday Linux is a weekly podcast, which aims to make Linux comprehensible to computer enthusiasts. It aims to give a breadth of knowledge seeking to put life in the context of Linux. Podcast is unusual, given that it's not really about Linux, per se, but more about three guys who happen to use and enjoy Linux. The presenters have released more than 100 podcasts, so we know it's a very uh, recent review. Uh, the podcast series had a somewhat ropey start, uh, but now has made <laughs> steady progress. The presenters take a fairly relaxed and pragmatic uh, approach to sensitive topics such as DRM, looking more at the end result rather than adopting a philosophy merely on moral grounds. There is good coverage of tech news in each podcast, and the listener feedback shows are particularly interesting, with lots of candid comments from listeners' air. The podcasts do have a tendency to go off on too many tangents, and shows are unnecessarily long, stretching the content a bit too thin. Nevertheless, the podcast offers good discussion of the joys and trials and tribulations of the presenter's adventures using Linux pitched at an intermediate level so there you go that's uh a little uh editorial content there but uh we appreciate it's an i said it's an honor just to be nominated 
Yeah, he didn't. Uh, he obviously didn't hear you go off on Stallman. Um, he <laughs> must not have heard that one. Yeah, he missed that episode. Of that I have yeah. great respect for some of the things that Stallman has done. I want to go on record as having said that, and now I want him to go away. <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, thanks for for uh, you know ri- we're rising up the charts because of you listeners. And we're we're glad to do it. Go out there. I, I also after I saw this in the notes, I went and looked at uh, our iTunes listing. We are currently listed as number uh, podcast number fourteen on the list. Come on, guys, we can do better than that. We should be at least eleven or twelve. But you know, we've cracked the top fifteen. That's so true. That's, <laughs> that's right. It's moving. Uh, so. I've actually, I was talking about this before we started the show. I've actually considered the possibility of changing the name of the show um, because it's kind of a bait and switch to call it Everyday Linux. And then we don't really talk. The focus isn't on Linux. And we were talking also earlier about the fact that we were five out of 10. And, uh, you know, some of you guys out there who like the show might be thinking, well, that's way too low. But it was a roundup of Linux podcasts. So if you compare us to, you know, Going Linux or the Linux Action Show, you know, they actually talk about Linux the whole time in 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 geeky detail. We don't. We yeah. we talk about technology in general. Uh it's it's really more it's less Linux and more maybe open source or or the the free software mindset. I don't know. So um I'm just curious what you guys think. Should we change the name of the show? Are we are we not properly representing the content with the name of the show? Let me know. But, you know, we're kind of like a metaphor for the Internet because people use Linux on the Internet all the time. They just don't realize it because it's on the back end that hosts up the servers. So Linux brings us together where we talk about stuff. So. uh, So if we're the metaphor for the Internet, does that make me grumpy cat? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a new new cat. I, I, I could see you being grumpy cat. I saw one of those. It's like, you know, smiling is contagious. And it shows him going, I've been vaccinated. <laughs> and it was, it was, a, it got me off guard. And I thought it was really funny. Okay. Moving right along. Um, the, the gospel of free software. I, I love, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about that, Seth. Well, um, I just wanted to put the link out there. I mean, it was kind of cool. The guy, if you're familiar with the Bible, he takes and kind of summarizes uh, the history of Linux, um, sort of like he's um, summarizing scripture. And I just wanted to throw the link out there. It's really hard to talk about, but it was kind of funny to read. Um, it, it just kind of caught my eye. And I thought, oh, you know, this is kind of funny. Um, and I know how much you love Richard Stallman. <laughs> so I really thought that you would, uh, you would most of all I- enjoy this. So uh, if you're, if you're uh, check out the show notes, when the show drops, just go take a look at it. And it's the gospel of free software. So it, so, it doesn't uh, go through all 66 books of the Bible. He's got Genesis, Exodus numbers and jump straight to revelation from there right he doesn't even do the full torah right well you know because you know leviticus is just a bunch of laws and there's only one law in open software and that's everything's free and then uh the other one deuteronomy is just kind of retelling the law so again (laughs) everything's still free 
<laughs> so, you know, that's like two sentences to sum up the other two books. So I'm just going to read the first couple of paragraphs of Genesis. In the beginning, in the first half billion seconds or so of the Unix epoch, Stallman was comfortable in the utop- in utopian cloister, which he was called the AI lab at MIT. There was much sharing of source within the lab, and Stallman saw that it was good. And the IT industry was, was without form and void, but change was in the ether. For out of the deserts of New Mexico, the rising heat was the rising of the great serpent, who was also called Beelzebub Gates. So there you go. That's as far as I'm going to go. Yeah. Like I say, it was, I thought it was fine. It's fine. Um, well worth the read if you're into, uh, you know, the history of internet and open source software and all of that kind of stuff. So if you like this podcast, you would probably like this article. And just a quick one-off, I saw my first television ad today for the BlackBerry Q10. I just think that... Was it worth to return them? That in itself is comedy. <laughs> that they're still, uh, that's- they're still trying. It's uh, now, if you haven't seen the BlackBerry Q10, it's their the the BlackBerry form factor, half screen, half keyboard, um, and pretty much the whole ad. Uh, I'm going to say seventy percent of the ad was about their new predictive text on their keyboard. Welcome to two thousand BlackBerry. You finally stepped into the world of predictive text entry. Congratulations. Well, I mean, let me ask you, Mark, would you rather see a commercial about predictive texts or about notebooks that click? <laughs> well, that's a good point. <laughs> At least it was a feature of the product. Um, I just, I can't imagine any serious phone user of any kind really being happy with that half screen. Um, it, I mean, uh, the I've got a, a phone with a four and a half inch screen. Uh, maybe it's not quite that, but it's, it's a four inch screen, somewhere around there. And it's too small to do a lot of stuff, right? You can't do any real web browsing because uh, it's right. just too tiny. And then the BlackBerry right. Q10 cuts that in half. No, no. But the thing is, I as I hate trying to do any amount of data entry on a uh, touch phone, you know, whether true, it be true. an iPhone or my, um, or my um, Android tablet. I, it just, it hurts my fingers, you know, to do more than just a couple of things. And, uh, so I like the notion of a keyboard, but I'm like you, the screens are too small. Anyway, the, the thing, the thing I always liked was the, uh, you know, the pop-up screen with the keyboard underneath it. That to me was the best of both worlds. You had the keyboard without diminishing the screen size. So, so Seth gets swipe, swipe changes everything. You're no longer tapping individual keys and makes it faster and easier. Um, well, I, I bought the uh, keyboard attachment for my BlackBerry. Or, I mean, not my BlackBerry, my Android. So, and I use my iPhone, you know, I don't to play Sudoku when I go to the bathroom, and that's about it. So, <laughs> I, I don't really need it. Okay. So, <laughs> straight from the BlackBerry that to the was bathroom. A too much. <laughs> Um, yeah. Mental well, note not to uh, borrow Seth's phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, presumably there's a barrier of some sort between the toilet and the phone, Chris. I, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't reach in the toilet to play it. <laughs> <laughs> Just you know? my personal preference. Uh, it it does strike me as odd when I go to the the restroom at work and I hear the guy next to me 
you know, obviously playing Angry Birds. It's like, how long have you been? In, how long do you plan to be in there? That that you took your your game with you while you were there. <laughs> oh, Dowdle, only because that we've already gone there. I'm going to read your comment. He says, "Does he use the wipe app?" Oh, oh, that hurt. Ow. Oh, I have a pun no, stuck in the. But back. you know, sometimes the poop app is nice <laughs> if I need to analyze it that we talked about last week. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna admit my geekiness here. After we talked about that show, I actually went and looked up the Bristol Miles uh, Meyer stool scale because I was just I couldn't believe such a thing even existed. And I learned about the history of it that it was invented in the UK at a university, um, um, uh, Bristol University, um, and it's uh, supposed to be able to help uh, identify digestive health. And but in the modern day, it's it's kind of poo pooed as as not being very uh, accurate or clinically valuable. So, Seth, you sent me down. I'm going to stop right there. Uh, you sent me off on a tangent with that one that I, my curiosity had to be to be uh, satisfied. And I'm now probably uh, uh, an expert on the Bristol Myers stool scale as a result of the poop log. Yes. Well, you know, I, uh, I do what I can to raise the <laughs> level of knowledge in the world, Mark. Anything I can do to help, it's just an honor to be you, really. <laughs> Oh, oh, okay. I'm going to keep growing right along. Hey, Chris, what did you do this week? Oh, man. I don't. Do, okay. This week. Um, yeah, you have to follow the poop. I had a, yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying how to not to, to go down that pun scale and, and not fall down any further. But uh, yeah, this weekend was a weekend of being unplugged. Uh, we had a family get together. And we were out in so far out in the boonies that there was, uh, I think the only way to get cell service was to hike up a hill and raise your hand in the air. And then you had any a form of cell service. You could get texts in and out if you were a lucky person. But uh, otherwise, there was almost zero Internet of any form in this area. Well, did you have a good time? Of course I had a good time. Good, good. There was a pool and a zip line, and we had kites in the air because the wind was blowing nice and hard. But it was a fun time, and I'm a little on the heat-exhausted and sunburnt scale for sure. So how many, it was fun. How many bottle rockets and, and such did you launch this week? Well, if we would have launched anything on that particular outing, um, that was, was it yesterday? Uh, we would have probably burned the prairie down because there is <laughs> th- there is literally nothing out there. Um, so we didn't we didn't bring any fireworks out to the camp the camping area. But uh, we probably when on the fourth and the fifth we probably blew up probably anywhere between two and five hundred dollars of fireworks. Nice. So we had lots Sweet. of fun. And Seth, in a precursor to the Seth's link of the week, has a has a warm up link for us this week. Is that The Walking Dead or Toy Story? The world may never know. Man, I just, I came across this when I was doing some research on my Seth's link. Because, you know, (laughs) I scour the web constantly. And I saw this and I laughed. So, I'm just going to make some statements here um, when this web page finishes reloading. And you tell me, is this from 
Toy Story or is this from The Walking Dead? And I figure there's a high correlation between the geeks who watch this show and people who are familiar with The Walking Dead. So the hero is a sheriff. Uh, golly, I hate my stupid computer. He's the occasional grumpy leader of a group of misfits. His best friend is a hyper macho officer of the law. And he has a kid he loves more than life itself. But his kid grows fond of the hero's best friend. Stay away from my kid. The hero kills his friend. All this while being overwhelmed by armies of shambling corpses. In number two, we're introduced to a yodeling cowgirl and a white-haired old man with a walking stick. In number three, they discover an idyllic gated community. They're welcomed with open arms by a kindly leader. The leader is really a psychopath driven mad by the loss of his little girl. You're not going anywhere. The hero's friends are tied up and interrogated. And then uh, it kind of goes on from there. So did I talk about Toy Story or The Walking Dead? Yes. <laughs> yes. It was, just, it was just really funny. I was like, because I saw it. Like, no way. I thought it was just going to be some memes or something. But, I mean, he kind of outlined them both. And I was like, oh, my gosh. They are the same. So I guess Toy Story is The Walking Dead for kids. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. Okay, so this is two weeks in a row that my audacity has totally crashed while recording, and I've had to resort to the backup. So maybe time oh, to invest in a new piece of hardware. <laughs> so anyway, luckily, backups are going. That's good. Yes. So if you heard just now the Windows startup sound, that was me. Uh, I don't know if you heard it over Seth or not, but that was me restarting the Windows. Yes, I said Windows machine that I used to record the show. The ancient Dell Inspiron laptop that is hanging on by a thread. See, you should just wipe that off and use something else and be all right. <laughs> uh, I would if I could. Once again, we've had this discussion. Drivers suck in Linux. Um, For now. So having said that, let's move on to the tech news of the week. Um, where have all the Linux gamers gone? Apparently, uh, the much-vaunted uh, Linux community on Steam has sort of dried up. Yeah, uh, the last few months, the Steam for Linux base has been in a continuous decline. And if you add up all of the different versions of Ubuntu, basically, um, from the last month, they just released their statistics for June. Uh, Linux has a whopping 1.07%. Um, so basically, not even half that of the 32-bit version of Vista, um, which is just kind of sad when you think about it. Um, I don't know. I, I was, the way I, it just kind of seemed all over the media that, you know, the Steam thing was really taking off and it was really growing. But now all of a sudden it looks like, I don't know, that the Steam platform is just kind of dying out. Now, a lot of people think that, you know, the Steam summer sale is about to start and that that's what a lot of the community is waiting for because while there are some games, there really aren't a lot. Um, but hopefully the uh, major titles that will be released during the summer sale 
will be enough to kind of get that percentage moving back in the upward direction because basically with the exception of Linux Mint 15, all of the other Linuxes showed a percentage loss um, in terms of the overall community. So come on, guys. Let's, uh, let's make Steam for Linux a success. Chris, I threw the story in there because I know how much you like it, and I figured you would have some good commentary on that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, what I think the biggest problem is with the the Linux client for Steam is the fact that there aren't no real games. You know, first, you know, I want to say, you know, grade A games. There's a lot of indie games and a lot of, um, say, five, six-year-old games that are being converted over to the Steam platform. But there's uh-huh. nothing, there's nothing any, you know, like, uh, well, the, like the, the game I've been playing lately is Borderlands 2. That's non-Linux. It's only a Windows available game, so you have to choose, you have to be a Steam player in Linux to play that game. A lot of the new games that are being released are in that way. Um, we we brought up the Humble Indie Bundle a numerous times, and those games are basically the only type of games that are available on the Steam client. Just because Steam is available doesn't mean that the games are going to be there, and that's the problem. We have this great client, which does all this great stuff for Steam, but there's nothing there for the, for the Linux gamers. So, they're either being driven back to Windows to play their, their AAA titles, or they just go on to do something else. You know, you know, use the Wine emulator in Linux on to get this, the Windows client of Steam to play their games, or something similar. See, that's the way I read these tea leaves, is uh, the Linux support came out, native Linux support for Steam. Uh, Linux, uh, Linux users tried it and said, this is not as good as running the Windows version under Wine, so I'm going to go back to that. Uh, yeah. And that's that's the way I read that. It's, it's, there was a solution already in place. The new solution that came out was not better, so there was no reason to move to it. So a few people dabbled with it. And then they went back, and so that's going to report. That's going to show up on their system as a Windows install. Windows probably XP um, yep. when when it's actually a Linux install. That's that's my thinking. Which, but I, I, I is, certainly agree with your point that that the the best games on Steam still aren't available for Linux. So it it kind of makes you wonder why they even bothered to build the native Linux app and then not put the good stuff on it. See, and there are games being converted. The Portal series is being converted. The um, Team Fortress 2 series, you know, the newest version of Team Fortress 2 has been converted. The Left 4 Dead versions are being converted. But those are older games that aren't going to pull the audience like any of the newer games are going to pull. So until we see, you know, the release day of, you know, big game AAA title here as a Linux native release we're never going to see any draw on steam on the steam client it's just not going to happen it's a great idea i i hope that it, they the the people over at valve keep it up and make sure that the the you know they, they don't lose what they already have in the linux community because i really am pushing all of my friends that i know that are are gamers and that can get the games on linux through steam to do that way instead of using wine All right, and uh, cool. the next story, <laughs> I, th- I think we've said all there is to say about that one. 
Native EX fat support arrives on Linux. For the everyday Linux user, that means nothing. For the geek, that's a big deal. Um, yeah. EXFAT is a proprietary Microsoft format that is primarily used on jump drives, uh, flash drives, whatever you want to call those things, external media. Uh, and there's always been some um, um, fruit basket turnover that has to be done in Linux to do that. You've got to use Fuse or something like that. But now it's actually live right there in the kernel. Yeah, I think it's um I think it's a big deal because now, you know, you don't have to worry about oh, can I use this, you know, if you have feet in both the Windows and the Linux world, you know, oh crap, is this formatted right? Can I save to it in Microsoft and all this? So now if it's EXFAT and you know and that's what you have, you don't have to worry about it. It just helps the interoperability between the two systems. And um, I think it's a good thing. And I don't really know that, you know, as far as the non-geeky person, that there's a lot you would need to do. I just think it's kind of cool. And it just removes one, albeit little roadblock, between seamless Windows to Linux migration. And if you're an Arch yeah, user... Plus it's a Linux story. That's right. So... If you're an Arch user, it's already there. You can run the Arch update system and you'll get it. Otherwise, if you're on any other system, it's easy as pie to manually install it. You simply need to clone the git source, enter the directory, and execute the make and sudo uh, make install commands, followed by the modprobe exfat underscore fs command. Simple as pie. (laughs) Yeah. To manually load the driver as root. There you go. Or just wait until it comes out in the next kernel update. Right. Yeah, but you know it's there. So, um, and it wasn't there before. So, yay us, um, I guess. Oh, okay. I, I just I love uh, articles with instructions like that because it was literally the the sentence I read to you was that to to install it simply do these thirty seven steps. Oh, duh. Uh, yeah, everybody knows that. That's uh, <laughs> why I even put them in there. Um, and Seth, I'm not even going to try to summarize this thing. Uh, the more things change, the faster they go. I, that, that's, I'm just going to say go. Well, um, this guy compiled, um, the amount of changes to the Linux kernel and he's done it since uh, version 3.4, uh, changes to the kernel per day and changes per hour. So if you look at all the changes between, version 3.9 and 3.10 it was it averaged out to be over nine changes an hour to the kernel so it has the versions has the kernel versions have gone on there have been more and more changes occurring at a faster and faster pace so it's not so much that the time between the kernels is changing it's just the amount of stuff is changing and so it's growing bigger and more complex um it just kind of points to the today really that there's so many people working on the linux kernel you know it's not a linus thing you know i think he said that you know he hasn't really wrote code in years he's kind of just the dictator that makes sure it happens on a good basis but there's so many people doing it and there's so many changes being made that it's really impossible for one person to do and the fact that you know over nine changes per hour between the time 3.9 and 3.10 was released um and yet 
you know, it, it didn't just fall apart. It's still pretty darn stable. So I just thought that was interesting. And it was just a little under the hood section that the everyday listener, you know, might not affect them, but it's just one of those geeky things that I, I like geeky trivia. That's really good for nothing. And so I try to bring my love of that to the show. And in other Linux news, the iPhone <clears throat> is uh, maybe more vulnerable to uh, hacking uh, than we first thought. Um, yeah, and now, to be fair, um, because, you know, we all know how impartial we are when it comes to all things Apple, this isn't so much the iPhone, but it's configuration settings that are installed by uh, AT&T as well as other carriers that changes that are made such as to automatically connect to certain AT&T hotspots or whatever that if somebody knows that they can just set up a rogue hotspot and install and you know and it shows like I saw this the other day on my phone carrier settings update it says new settings are available would you like to update them now and I just clicked update I didn't bother to investigate or know what it was um, and so Imagine you're going through an airport or, you know, a crowded place. If you're an urbanite person, which, you know, most of the world is these days, you're just all of a sudden see this come up on your screen. You're not going to stop and pull up an internet page and say, you know, what stuff is my carrier releasing? You're just like, oh, okay. And I'm going to click update. And the next thing you know, you've installed something that gives your that gives these programs access to you know like send text messages or stuff like that so um and since it's carrier configuration stuff that is kind of i don't really know if it it's kind of independent right. of the actual ios so it doesn't matter really how sandboxed and secure the ios is this is kind of the phone settings that the ios would interface with so you know again it's one of those you can lock um you know, you can lock every door to your house and chain it with an armed guard behind it, but big deal, you left the second story window wide open and a ladder mm. next to it. So, um, so it's yeah, just my, one of those things that, you know, security is, it's it's your responsibility, whether you, you know, it's all of our responsibility. I have an AT&T phone, um, and it's an Android phone, and it is hard-coded into the device to connect to AT&T Wi-Fi, anything called AT&T Wi-Fi, it connects to automatically. I can't make right. it stop. Um, it's I can delete it from the list um, of things. Uh, actually, I can't delete it from the list of things. Ordinarily, you can click on something, you can hold it down and say, forget network. The AT&T Wi-Fi thing, you can't. It's hard coded. It's right there. It's in my particular phone. It's it's built into the the subsystem, the kernel, really, um, of the Android. So anytime I drive by a McDonald's, it connects to their network, whether I want it to or not. Um, and uh, because McDonald's have AT and T Wi Fi hotspots in them, and often those things will require some sort of login where you have to agree to a a, a license, a, an agreement or something. I'll be downloading something. Uh, streaming something over uh, a podcast or something online, drive by a McDonald's, not not going in, just happen to be at a stoplight next to a McDonald's, it'll connect to that, disconnect my connection because it preferentially goes to Wi-Fi over uh, self-data uh, network 
And there's nothing I can do about it. I can't remove this. I can't block it. I'm sure there's some root level thing that I could do. I just haven't looked into it. But that's what they're talking about. So if you're walking around with an AT&T phone, regardless of the OS, it will preferentially and automatically connect to any uh, Wi-Fi access point with the SSID of ATT Wi-Fi. And so if that happens to be a bad guy who set that up, you can be hosed without doing anything on your own. And there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, the only thing you can do is turn off Wi-Fi, you know, so um, that's your only defense against this is to not run Wi-Fi. So, and according, you know, which just from a battery standpoint, because I notice I can like watch my battery meter. It's like when you're filling up the gas pump, you know how the uh, the scent thing just kind of flashes random numbers up there. That's like how fast my battery drains. So (laughs) I turn off Wi-Fi every chance I get, um, you know, even whenever I'm. You know, just like if I'm driving home, I'll turn off Wi-Fi because if I don't, I'll lose 10% of my phone charge in an hour um, because of AT&T's great battery or iPhone's great battery management. So, you know, it's one of those things if you're doing battery saving steps like that, you're, you, can, you can't eliminate your risk, but you can mitigate it. And just so that we're not only picking on uh, iPhone, Android has some new security flaws as well. Yeah, and these flaws have apparently existed since at least 1.6, which was like, that was really, I think, one of the first major versions of Android whenever it finally started to break out and go widespread. Uh, And there's still a lot of 1.6 devices out there. Um, The flaw, uh, golly, I had it, and then, um, ah, I I clicked on something on the page and I lost the stuff I highlighted. So here's the summary of it. Uh, It can be a cryptographically signed app that is uh, a valid app that says uh, that that you've uh, downloaded from the Play Store. But malware can modify that app after you've installed it, after you've verified, yes, this is a good app, and make it do stuff. Right, because the flaw was actually in the uh, cryptology that they used uh, to verify the signing. Um, and they, they can modify it to, again, uh, put backdoors in the program, key loggers, or other kind of malicious, malicious functionality without changing the verification signature. So if you've ever downloaded something from the Internet and, you know, a lot of the pages, they give you that MD5 checksum where you can download something and verified as the checksum you have is the same as that well imagine somebody just went ahead and added two other programs that you know changed your password to you know please punk me and so and then opened up a back door to a hundred different websites or whatever so that's kind of the equivalent of what this app can do or not what this app but what this vulnerability can do and um so again it's one of those things it's your security. Um, it's your phone. So it, it's just one of the, uh, I, I can't think what I'm saying. I'm sorry. I'm trying to read the article to get back to where I was. I don't really see in here. Mark, did you see where it like told you a workaround or thing you can do to, um, you know, kind of protect yourself against this? I really don't recall. And I'm zoom, looking over. I don't see that. Well, it's a just update. But it's an it's an old update that's been around for a while, and a lot of us can't update. If you've got right. if you've got an old device that you got from a uh, you know that won't run the latest versions, you're stuck. 
So, uh, right. Well, and even apparently this article doesn't say how recent it goes up to, but it's not just 1.6. So it's just been around since that long. So right. hopefully it will be updated soon. And, uh, you know, hopefully they have a concept or they already have a fix for it and, you know, it'll come out in the next update or maybe it's already been taken care of, but it's just, you know, I try to be, I try to be fair and biased and bash everyone here. <laughs> and for all you freedom lovers out there who are, uh, rage against DRM and, uh, things that you can only lease online rather than actually own image comics is coming to the rescue and saying, we will actually let you own the content. When you buy it, you're not just buying the rights to use it. You're buying the actual content. That's a big deal. Kind of. Yeah. Image is the third largest comic book company behind Marvel and DC, and they actually um, published The Walking Dead, which was the only one that I was familiar with because I'm really not as into comics as I used to be. But um, and apparently what you do when you buy comics um, digitally, um, quote unquote, buy them is you get access to the website where they are and you can look at them as long as they go through the trouble of having them up there for you to look at. Um, but you don't own them. You just get to look at them once in a while when they let you. And so what image is doing, and of course, you know, it's because well, people are stealing it, blah, blah, blah. In actuality, what ends up happening is the pirates have better quality stuff than the people who pay the money. So um, Image has gone through and they said, well, you know, what we're going to do is we're also going to offer the option to um, download uh, PDF, EPUB, CBRs, or CBZs. So, you know, if you want to download it as PDFs, and it's kind of basically, you know, like a bunch of JPEG pictures that you can look at however you want to, you know, on whatever device you want to. So they are realizing that, hey, you know, and this is one of those things, hey, maybe you, um, you know, maybe you get a pirated thing and you look at it and you like it and you go, hey, well, you know, if all it, if all it costs is the same as going out and buying the rag and then I can look at and, you know, and it's just as easy and I don't have to jump through all these hoops, I will do it. It's like, uh, you know, I tell people a friend of mine had a PlayStation or had an Xbox two and he had the um, pre a leaked French version of Halo 2 when it came out, um, pirated version. And I played that with him and I so enjoyed playing it that the very next day on my way home from work, I bought an Xbox Halo 1 and pre-ordered Halo 2. So in that case, you know, you can argue that piracy was illegal and technically what we did was break the law, but that instance of piracy resulted and and plus he had already pre-ordered it halo 2 and all of us all the other guys who were playing it they already had halo and pre-ordered halo 2 so in that particular case at least for me piracy gained the company money so because it wasn't you know it created demand and i went out and i le i satisfied that demand legally so they are seeing that um, well, I don't know. I just think it's a big deal. The fact you that go. you can actually own something you buy. I know that's a novel concept. There's a great quote here from the uh, publisher, Eric Stevenson, who says, quote, my stance on piracy is that piracy is bad for bad entertainment. There's a pretty strong correlation with things that suck not being greatly pirated. While things that are successful have a higher piracy rate. If you put out a good comic book, even if somebody downloads it illegally, 
If they enjoy it, then the likelihood of them purchasing the book is pretty high. Obviously, we don't want everybody giving a copy to 100 friends, but this argument has been around since some home taping was supposedly killing the music industry back in the 70s, and that didn't happen. I don't think it's happening now. So uh, that's a great quote from Eric Stevenson, the publisher of of, um, Image Comics. That's a great quote, and the actual truth of the matter, in my opinion. Yeah, so piracy, yeah, mine as well. Piracy is only the enemy if uh, if your content sucks. If I, I, I'm not familiar with the uh, the publication, uh, but a listener sent me an email recently uh, and said that he found our show when it was rebroadcast on Hacker Public Radio. I don't know what Hacker Public Radio is. Uh, but apparently they uh, rebroadcast stuff, and they put one of our episodes out there. Now, all of my stuff is licensed as Creative Commons. You can do that legally, so it wasn't piracy. But we gained a listener because they did that. Awesome. And I think that's what happens. I think your story, Seth, I, I, there have been many times back when I was doing that sort of thing, I would uh, download music from Kazaa or something like that, like it, and go buy the album. And in fact, there's been lots of studies that have shown that the, the top piraters are also the type, top purchasers. I think we just need to get over this lock everything down or we'll lose money kind of thing. Right. Uh, okay, moving right along. What is the cloud made of? Well, pies and Legos, of course. Yes, uh, the University of Glasgow in Scotland, they have created a working model of a multi-million pound, or you know, and of course that's the British currency, cloud computing platform using Lego bricks and Raspberry Pi mini computers. The project, which is called Raspberry Pi Cloud, is that it was an idea of some lecturers at the uh, School of Computing there, and they just thought it was a great way to do hands-on. And you can have, and there are plans out there where, you know, you can buy and create a supercomputer using Raspberry Pis. So, you know, Legos, who doesn't like to play with Legos, even adults? You know, if you if there's Legos around the house, you know sometimes you'll pull them out and just put them together and make stupid stuff. You'll start <laughs> off with your kids. The kids will leave, and you'll still be there playing with the Legos. Yeah. So, you know, for an investment of less than $4,000, they're able to build a Linux-based system that shows um, researchers and students. It gives them complete access to a working cloud infrastructure. And, uh, you know, you can make the uh, Raspberry Pi supercomputer with as few as, like, um, two Raspberry Pis. So, you know, you can make a very small scale of this I, I just thought it was really cool. It was a really neat story, and there's some photos that are on the uh, link that will be in the show notes. It's just kind of cool. You know, you got Raspberry Pis uh, being held up and held together with Lego bricks, and they've made a cloud infrastructure with them. So just a it's quick, just a neat story. Quick clarification there. It was, was, was 4,000 pounds was what it was cost, oh. roughly $7,000. Uh, right. It was 56 Raspberry Pis. Uh, and the infrastructure to tie them all together. But they say the process could be scaled up or down at will. <laughs> That's kind of cool. The, the Raspberry Pi shows up in an unusual place once again. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And our last news story of the week, it's been a week since Google Reader died. Did anybody notice? I was a yeah. huge Google Reader fan. But when they announced they were killing it, I moved on to another service called The Old Reader. 
And I didn't even notice when Google Reader went away. And I bet a lot of people uh, are doing the same thing. Yeah, but um, this one is an open source project that was it's designed and working to mimic the look and feel of Google Reader. So it'll give you uh, it's called Go Read. And it's currently under development. So, you know, it's kind of in, well, of course, just like everything Google has released, it's in a beta state. Right. Um, you know, google.com is still in beta. Um, so, you know, things, sometimes things aren't working right. And the guy mentions in the article that sometimes some of the features aren't working yet. But uh, go read.io uh, and the source is on GitHub. So if you liked the look and feel of Google Reader, and you know you've cried yourself to sleep every night for the week, pining for the days of internet. Your um, have no fear, my friend. Go read is here for you. And I, uh, when that is in a more stable state, I will definitely check it out because I did like Google Reader a lot. I don't like the old Reader as much. And what I like about this is I can put it on my own web host, and then still have a web-based RSS reader accessible from any platform anywhere on the planet. But I control it. And nobody could ever take it away from me again. The old reader is a service I'm subscribed to. And just the other day, for example, it was down for a little while. Not long, but it was down. And I didn't have any control over it. So I love the idea that somebody's recreating Google Reader in an open source uh, way so that I can put it up on my own server and use it my own way. Uh, I will definitely be keeping tabs on that because that's what I want. Well, cool. There you go. <laughs> I missed it. Um, the old reader does enough for me that it makes it so I can continue you know keeping up with my news my news but I still miss the fact that the simplicity of Google Reader and the fact that it was tied in with my stuff and yeah there's a little a few things I remember I miss in Google Reader I will miss you and remember you always yeah they were the Google Reader fans were small in number but large in um, passion uh, those of us who were who used it um, were passionate about it. I used it literally every day, many times a day. And while I've switched to a different service, it's not as good. Sorry, the old reader. I know you guys try, but it's not as good. Uh, and I would love to have something that uh, gives me that same functionality that I can control. Yeah, right. I, you know, it's it's one of those things that I miss it. And you know, you know, ye old reader, you do a decent job of making up for it, but it's just not the same. And I can't come up with a transition, so I'm just going to say this show is brought to you by the LinuxAcademy.com, uh, where you can uh, find step-by-step -step video courses to help uh, beginners learn to administer Linux servers. That's the whole thing. That's what they're all about. Do you do you want to know how to run a server? The Linux Academy has got has got you hooked up. You get your own Linux server lab running on Amazon's backend that lets you run up to eight different distributions uh, in real time, so that you can follow along with the videos and do uh, what they're doing in the videos live on your own thing. You, you also have downloadable PDF study guides and reference sheets. So if you're a paper kind of guy, you can print those things out and you can have the paper reference right in front of you while you're watching the video. How many videos are there? Over a hundred with thousands of hours available of, of video, step-by-step -step sort of stuff. And if you don't want to um, 
Uh, if you don't have the bandwidth for that or you uh, want to be a little more mobile, uh, by the way, all of their content is uh, mobile uh, compatible, so it will work on your, your tablet or your phone. But if you don't want to do that, you can buy a DVD with all the stuff on it, including virtual machine images of the Linux labs, uh, of the, the Linux servers that you would have on the Amazon environment. So you can get the whole thing offline if you want. And uh, the cost is only $19 a month. Or if you buy two months, you get a third one for free, $38 a quarter. Now, I have been saying for a while now that the first seven days is free. Turns out that's not accurate. That was some uh, copy that Anthony gave me a long time ago, and we've just been carrying it forward every week. Uh, but when I went to look at the site to, to check it out, it was it's not seven days free. It's 14 days for a dollar. So I sent him an email and said, what's with the dollar, dude? Why not make it free? And he gave me what I thought was a really good answer. He said, if you got a dollar, it shows that you've got a PayPal account. If you don't have a PayPal account, you were never going to buy this thing anyway. So there's no point in giving me, giving you a seven day or 14 day trial to somebody who's never going to actually sign up because they don't even have a PayPal account. That made a lot of sense to me. So it cost you a buck to get a 14 day trial. Uh, and then if you want to keep going for the, the next, um, uh, two weeks of the uh, trial, you kick in another $18 and you get a full month. Uh, and uh, it's totally worth it. And by the way, if you go sign up, use the uh, the uh, code EverydayLinux in the uh, referral box when you sign up to let them know that uh, that we sent you. And when you, if you've been there before and you didn't quite uh, decide you wanted to sign up, go check it out because they've completely redesigned the course, uh, the, the course browser. They redesigned the website. And um, they now have uh, qu a quiz structure that's live. So not just lessons, but quizzes and, and an automated testing system where you can um, take tests. It will grade them. It will uh, spit back uh, your uh, things that you need to work on. There's also a lesson browser. So instead of having to take a full course like Server Administration 101, you can take just this lesson out of Server Administration 101 and then just this lesson out of uh, uh, the web stack server and this lesson out of this. And it collates all that and it says, these are the lessons you've taken. Here's your track. Here, uh, here's what you've done. Here's what you still need to do. So it's all really cool stuff. You can learn the way you want to learn. You can learn one lesson at a time or you can take the full course. You can do it on the website. You can do it uh, offline. You can do it on a mobile browser. All that for for less than twenty bucks a month. Check them out, linuxacademy.com. And I was going to say, if you are going towards Linux certification, that way that you can break out the individual lessons is really key because you take a quiz um, and you say, oh, wow, it turns out I did not listen to that one section as thought as, as much as I thought I did. Well, you can go back and do just that lesson. You don't have to sit through the whole course again. So you can bone up on the things that are your weaknesses after you've gone through it. So it's a really great review. Um, you know, this, this is the kind of thing that you go and you pay a couple of thousand dollars uh, for a week or a weekend crash course boot camp for, but here you can do it over a month and you can go back and have access to it uh, time and time again. It is really, really, really worth the money if you're going to put the effort into it. Um, it, it's high quality. It's good stuff. So, um, hearty recommending from the gooey kid. And 19 bucks a month is dirt cheap, people. Um, it really Definitely. is. Uh, I, uh, I'm not going to divulge the, the conversations that, that Anthony and I have had, uh, uh, 
uh, in private, but I will say it won't be $19 a month forever. Um, the, the, you can be pretty sure that the quality of content that he's offering is going to demand a higher price uh, at some point in the future. Uh, but he's been very good in the past about grandfathering in uh, those who have signed up at a, at a given rate. Again, I'm not going to speak for him. I don't know that this is official policy, but uh, if you're interested uh, in getting in on it, uh, do it now rather than later because the, the stuff is worth a lot more money and he's got it low priced right now uh, to uh, to sort of get his name out there. Uh, and but once he becomes uh, recognized as the premium content that he actually has, I suspect the price will go up. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Get in while you can, uh, because this is dirt cheap, people. Nineteen bucks a month, yeah. or or three months for thirty eight dollars. Come on, it's thirteen dollars a month for th- for three months. That's dirt cheap. And like I say, if you're if you're really wanting to get into Linux, or if you know someone who is looking to get into the computer field, but you know, they don't have time to go four years for a degree or, you know, golly, I can't, I don't have $5,000 to go to an MCSE boot camp. Well, you got $20 for a month of this. Um, you can learn and you can do the steps you know, not hypothetically, well, when you're in a real world company, you just need to know it's like you can do actual tasks that somebody in the technology system administration profession would be doing. You're doing the exact same thing that you would be doing and you're getting real world experience broken down in a step by step learnable way. So, you know, if you're if you know someone who's looking to get into the field, high school, somebody just graduated high school or they're starting their senior year or they're about to go into college and they think that computer administration, network administration is where they want to get into twenty dollars and one month will tell them if they want to get into it or not. And if they do, it's really worth it. They can come out of this um, l- loads ahead, you know. Excellent. All right. So now on to the listener feedback, because we promised you this was a listener feedback show. So here we go. Uh, Beginning with Raymond, who says he's looking forward to our SSD show. I'm guessing he sent this before last Wednesday. Uh, So he says, EDL crew, as I get into more podcasts, it shows like EDL that are the real gems out there. I'm writing because, for one, I think an entire show on SSDs is a great idea. I would love to hear your input on those, uh, uh, what, what your input on those are. However, as you mentioned, possibly talking more about links, which would also be great, as I've, just, uh, as I've always just used symbolic links in Linux and whatever similar version in Windows is. I can't even remember the command right now, but I had to do it to fix a few legacy applications. I'm also a big Microsoft Development Tools fan, and I've been curious about what I think is the hard linking of files when you do in-place migrations. After your excellent description on partitioning, yes, many more of that type of information would be great. Your commentary, rants, off-topic, non-technical, bacon and barbecue, coffee, life adventures, movie overviews, uh, all wrap around the technical talk so that your Linux podcast that isn't about Linux is also about Linux and technology, but it's a real joy to listen to. Wow. That was quite a sentence there, Richard or Raymond. Um, I started listening here because you were on either uh, all about, uh, no, 
uh, Android app addicts or Linux for the rest of us. It was Linux for the rest of us. But regardless, it drew me here. So I'm f- filling the time between any new podcast going back through the back catalog. Spur of randomness, I lived in Elville. Test, that's how we wrote it for the mail. What's the name of the city? Sorry, I don't know. I tried to look it up. Uh, for just over a year. Louisville? No, uh, it's, it's somewhere around this area. Uh, for just over a year, often going to the Underground Mall, riding Marta, which is the metro area rapid transit, and enjoying Stone Mountain. So it was great. So it was just some of that, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about moments during the show that came up. Um, eventually, I moved back to my village of Holly, Michigan, uh, where every winter I remember that in Georgia, I didn't have to shovel heat. Seriously, keep it up. <laughs> I'm enjoying it, and I think it's all fantastic. Thanks, Raymond. Those cool. are that was a random stream of consciousness that ended up with a compliment. So thanks for that. <laughs> uh, and Stephen also chimes in on SSDs. He says, "Hello." In a recent episode, you had a round robin discussion on the reasons why Linux is fundamentally cache aggressive and why using an SSD as a main drive would be problematic in the long run. A week prior, I installed a brand new SSD in my Chromebook running Crouton, and so this caught my attention rather alarmingly. I recently ran across this article on Engadget about the Linux 3.10 kernel. Uh, does this fix the issue? Uh, also, if you could please elaborate on the meaning of cash aggressive. I love the show. Love the banter. Love the bacon. Cheers, Stephen. <laughs> and we did a whole show on that, and we did talk about the Linux 3.1 that exact kernel. Article, that, actually. that exact article, which prompts a correction from Dowdle. Who says, greetings, Mark mistakenly said that the odd numbers of Linux kernel are in development kernels. This hasn't been true for quite some time, maybe five or six years or longer. The Linux kernel developers come out with new major releases of the Linux kernel every 2.75 to three months. The three months that a kernel is under development, they have RC, release candidate leases, uh, releases that you could call development kernels. But once this is done, they drop the RC number and add it to the stable release. So 3.8 was stable, 3.9 was stable, and the new 3.10 is stable. Uh, Here's the best video I've found, although it's a little data that explains the new kernel development process. And we'll put that in the show notes. Um, It was the next, whatever, a few days later, as I was listening back to the show, and I heard myself say that 3.9 was a development kernel, I thought, well, that's wrong. Somebody's going to call me on that one. And like... A minute and a half later, I get Dowdle's email. <laughs> so, um, yes, I, I misspoke. Uh, it is true that they no longer use that. Uh, there, what I was thinking was that there are still a lot of other things like GIMP that I follow uh, pretty closely that still uses that because it was the Linux kernel way. It sort of became the open source way. Then the Linux kernel changed, and the rest of open source still kind of does it that way. So, yeah, I was incorrect. Thank you for catching me on that, Scott. Well, Scott, we'll do Way that. Way to go, Scott. <laughs> I know that if I ever say something wrong, it will be pointed out very shortly thereafter. Um, and Rich checks in on the distro divergence issues. He says, hey, guys, I've been a listener to EDL for about six months now, and I've found that it's one of the best, if not the best, non-Linux shows I listen to. I find myself getting impatient for the next show release. I love how you guys talk as... Uh, everyday regular guy users of Linux. I've been using Linux now for about two years, and my distro of choice is Linux Mint with Cinnamon. Listening to the last show and many before it, I found myself frustrated with some of the Linux community not seeing the big picture of the beauty of Linux. I use Linux because I loathe the other two choices. 
I have uh, for an OS, and I love to tinker. But I'm not a so programmer. So is that BSD and Unix? That he's <laughs> yes, the about? other two choices. Uh, yes, uh, he doesn't like uh, BSD or Tizen. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I'm not a programmer or a system admin. I'm a truck driver uh, that just lost his place while reading the page, and now I can't find it. Uh, it's in there somewhere. I'm a truck driver that just wants a distro to work. No fuss, no muss. I have to do some tweaking, but that's cool. When I hear people talk uh, talk down on distros such as Mint and Ubuntu because it's not Linux pure, it frustrates me. When I listen to you guys talking about the divergence of distro, distros, it made me think there's plenty of room in Linux for everyone. From Easy Linux Mint to the, oh my God, I have to use the command line arch. I guess my worry is that the gurus of the arch ilk um, will win out and we'll start seeing the easy go away. Not going to happen, but I need to worry about something, I guess. I personally hope that in my lifetime I see Linux beat out at least one of the top two on the desktop side. And I think we can... I think we can with some advertising, word of mouth, and we can... Can we please get things like Netflix to work natively on Linux already? I'm with you, brother. I'm with you. I've converted my wife to HTML5. Mint. HTML5. <laughs> I've converted my wife to Mint with little to no problems. Uh, I put Mint on my daughter's laptop, and she was enjoying it until she tried to watch Netflix. Deal breaker. To comment on one of the feedback questions about printing on Linux... I've used HP, Brother, Epson, and Lexmark printers on Linux with meant with little to no problems. HP was simple by installing the HP, LIP, and CUPS works for most of the others. Um, I do agree that printer support still needs work, uh, but we have come a long way from just two or three years ago. Keep up the great work, guys. I'm looking forward to the next show, and may the bacon be with you. Mmm, bacon. <laughs> so... I think that I think Dowdle is the only one so far who hasn't mentioned bacon in his feedback. Uh, um, Dowdle, there's something wrong with you. Just so you know. Well, that's well, he's one of those turkey bacon right. guys. So yeah. yeah, yeah, but he didn't even mention bacon either. So, um. by the way, oh wait, I'll get to that in a minute. Nige uh, offers some insight on the UK and open source. Uh, he says, it was interesting to hear the discussion in episode 100 that the UK government is watering down of its previous stance in favor of open source software. This comes as no surprise at all. All major government information systems are based on Microsoft products, and the company goes to great lengths to make sure that things stay that way. The licensing arrangements are such that the government pays a tiny fraction for each copy of Windows or Office of what a commercial organization would be charged. It would be impossible for the open source community to make a case for itself based on financial grounds. Another important issue is that there have been so many disastrous IT projects in the public sector involving either huge cost overruns or total failure that there would be no enthusiasm to make such a major change. You will find a few Linux and uh, Unix and Linux servers in specialist roles, but in the context of the UK government networks, they are insignificant. The best we can realistically hope for is adoption of some of the more open file formats. I see no prospect for Microsoft being dislodged from their monopoly position unless something goes seriously long, wrong with Microsoft themselves. Can you say Windows 8? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Vista, but okay, that works too. Yeah, I think there are those who would say that there is something seriously long with uh, Microsoft already. 
Uh, but Nigel, I just want to say that what you described is common. Um, I don't know about in government. I don't have experience with that, but certainly in public education, that's the case as well. Uh, when I was working in schools, we could get Microsoft licenses. We could get the, uh, the, I forget what they call it now, but includes all versions of windows and all versions of office for like eight bucks a user. I mean, it was ridiculously low. Uh, and the reason there is, is, is to take what you, what you just said. It takes the, the financial argument out of it. You can't say we can't afford it because it's virtually free. Um, yeah, the, uh, right. the last district I worked for got the, uh, please don't drop us and go to open source pricing plan. They paid $10 per teacher, um, in the district. And that allowed them to use the current version of office on all the district computers, plus provide, uh, free for the employees to use on their home machines and students so, as well. That license includes uh, students. Yeah. For, for $10. So, you know, for roughly, and of course, you know, for every teacher, there's many, many computers. So, it, and then they can take it home and put it on their computers, plural at home. And so it ends up being like a buck a license. So yeah, it really wasn't about the money. It was about the, please right. don't leave us. Yeah. Uh, the guys in the chat room are, are reminding me, it's called the Microsoft campus agreement or volume licensing agreement. They recently uh, changed the terms of that. To what you're what you're saying, Seth. It's based on the number of professional staff you have. So your teachers, your administrators. It doesn't count custodians. It doesn't count lunchroom workers. It's your professional staff, and based on that, regardless of how many devices, uh, th that's what you get. And so you get this license that lets you put it on all devices you own, plus all devices owned by your staff, plus all devices owned by your students, which it makes it a no-brainer. Um, and, right. and you know, as 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 much much anti Microsoft as I have been, and it's not just uh, that I'm pro Linux. I have been anti Microsoft. I had I had to do that. It was it would be um, malfeasance on my part to overlook that because of my own preferences toward other operating systems. So we did that for so right. for a couple thousand bucks, we put uh, Windows Seven and Office two thousand ten on on all of our machines and get, made them available to students and teachers uh so yeah they they're really super aggressively trying to to keep the hooks in there because what happens then is your students are trained on that they graduate they get into the business world and the business world says well we have to use microsoft because that's all our people know and then they that's where they really pay for it i know you know working in yeah. the in the private uh healthcare uh, uh thing uh industry that i am now uh, those those bulk pricing things are non-existent. They've never heard of them. If I went to the the right. IT guy and said uh, you have to um, um, you have to you could get this for ten bucks a user, they would laugh at me. But uh, the fact remains that because there's a uh, culture of Microsoft has been created, it takes place in the in the enterprise, and that's where they're making their money. So, yeah. yeah, it's not just in the, in the UK, Nigel, it's here as well. And it's, it's a brilliant business move. If you happen to be a multi-billion dollar company and you can afford to take that loss, it's a brilliant business move. It's not a business move for this quarter or even for this year. It's a 10 year play. Um, and it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's going to work for them. It's going to work beautifully for them because like you said, Nigel, you, you, there's no sell. For using anything else you just you can't make an argument 
because they've made made Microsoft products so cheap. All right, moving right along, Travis asks for some help. Says I've trying I've been trying off and on for a few years now to switch my main PC over to Linux. Now that I stopped playing World of Warcraft, I don't have a gaming need to be on Windows anymore. Now, I know you can run it in Wine, but I didn't want the hassle or the anti-cheat software flagging my account uh, for running on Linux. My question is, do you guys know of any software that will give me the functionality of the Windows 7 and Windows 8 volume equalization feature? I watch quite a few videos and listen to tons of music while I work, but there are often differing volume levels with different videos and MP3s. I think Banshee has something like this built in, so the music isn't a big deal, but the Banshee equalizer is not system-wide. Volume low on videos, crank up the system to 150%, sound breaks my ears <laughs> and the speaker. Uh, regards Travis. So uh, I thought I'd pass this on to the audience. You guys aware of anything like that? I didn't even know Windows could do that because I use a tool called something. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it went through and uh, 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 changed the volume, uh, normalized the volume on all of my MP3s in the MP3, which was awesome. And it was a free tool. And if I can remember the name of it, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, but for videos, which I don't do a whole lot of videos, I, I certainly get the point. Things go up and down. So you're, are you guys aware of anything, Chris? Do you know anything like that? Um, not for changing video inside, not changing volume levels inside of your videos, but I know something like in Pulse and in inside of uh, the KDE Mixer, you can set a, a particular volume level, maximum level for a device. And then the device, you know, whatever the volume level is of, say, your MP3 player or your your music video or your YouTube or whatever you're listening to can't ever exceed that volume level. So I, I, I'm not sure if he's talking about where he's working on stuff locally like you're thinking, Mark, or if he's just consuming the, the audio and video off of, the, off of a website. Well, it sounds like what um, he wants is a compressor. That says anything below this point will be raised up, and anything above this point will be lowered down, regardless of the source. Right. Uh, I don't. Well, you know, know how um, in the um, in Windows you can go into just the speaker icon that's on your system tray, and then you can set the volume for mo- for Firefox or for right. Audacity or for Chrome or for the Hangout and whatever comes through that particular program is maxed at that volume. That's what he's talking about. Um, so, you know, like if I'm watching YouTube, that's Adobe flash, I can set a maximum level on that. But if I'm in Firefox, I can set something else. If I'm in, um, VLC, I can set a different maximum level. So that's what he's talking about. The volume mixer that's just built in to windows seven. Actually, no, I just did a quick Google search in Windows 7, there is something called automatic volume leveling that is not per source. It's actually even within a song. If you're listening to a classical piece that gets really quiet, it'll bring the volume up. And when it gets loud, it'll bring the volume down. Um, I didn't know that feature existed. Oh, so it screws it up like Skype. Okay, yeah, well, that yeah, makes sense. Exactly. So, um, I would say, though, you know, if, if that's what he's looking for, I don't know of one off the top of my head. Maybe Ear Candy might be one he could look into. Um, because that brings all audio down when, say, something like Skype fires off. Um, but I think the closest thing to that is going to be Pulse, the Pulse audio control. 
that would do that because then you can, you know can set your your levels for de- uh, either devices or uh, programs like what Seth was just talking about. Uh, but other than that, I don't know off the top of my head. Well, it's out there now, and the billions and billions of Element OP listeners will let us know if they have any ideas. So uh, well, uh, I will report back to you, Travis. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe Travis, maybe kind of um, send us a clarification too, because you're... Mark read one side of, the, of that question, and I read it as a different side. So maybe some clarification of what you're looking for even might help too. And uh, post uh, post something in the forums on elementopi.com. Uh, uh, Go to the the Everyday Linux forums. Post something there, and uh, that we will have a lasting. Uh, th- these podcasts tend to be somewhat ephemeral; they come and go, and then are forgotten. But uh, the forum will be there, so do that. Uh, and next, we have Sean's printer responding to a show. Not so much Sean himself, but his printer. It says, you guys answered a question of mine about printing on Linux in the 100th episode. And it's nice to know you guys were able to rate the intelligence of my printers. Um, if you may remember, I called his printers too stupid to work in Linux. Uh, he says they can't be that stupid, however, because one jammed the day after the 100s recording. Seeing as how I didn't listen to it until Wednesday, it's clearly competent enough to watch the live stream, know you're talking about it, and respond with outrage. Thanks for ticking off my Xerox. More importantly, thanks for the podcast. I've not been here for the 100 plus shows, but I intend to be here for 100 more. One condition, apologize to my printer. (laughs) Okay, Sean, first of all, we called your printer ignorant. There's a big difference between ignorance and stupidity. No, I'm pretty sure it's I use the, the word stupid. Fault that it doesn't know that it wasn't trained to do this. So it needs to take its ire out on the manufacturer and not on us. We're trying to help it get it the knowledge necessary to work correctly in Linux. We say hard things because we care. <laughs> and, you know, it's like if you've got a splinter stuck in your hand, it's going to hurt to pull it out. You can baby it, but it will never go away. We say the hard things because we care. I know your printer. I know it was just overreacted and everything is good now. You've got a great solid printer and we're glad to have it aboard in the element <laughs> OP nation. Sean's printer. That's all I can do. Sorry. Sean's printer, you're stupid. I refuse to apologize. He should tie you to the end of a string and use you as a boat anchor. Go and die. <laughs> or Sean's printer, just watch Office Space. That's where we're headed next. There you go. Uh, I have a couple of those sitting in my back shed. Perfect for that reason. And then Richard writes in asking about email clients. He said, hi, guys. I've been using Gmail for several years, and I've been on the whole pretty happy with it. But now I've been thinking about using an email client on my laptop and desktop to allow me to have a backup of all my emails as I do not completely trust Google. I would like to get my emails on my phone, but only for informational purposes. So I know if I have anything important to deal with later. One of the main issues for me is using an email client. um, Excuse me. One of the main issues for me with using an email client is the way that Google uses its own structure of labels, which some email clients don't seem to like very much. Would it be better if I set up an email account with another provider and forward all my emails uh, from my Google account to that and then use IMAP to connect to that or just stick with Gmail? Perhaps you will say stay with my current setup and then recommend a different way of backing up my emails. Who knows what your great minds will come up with? Thank you in advance. Kind regards, Richard. 
Um, and he has a PS that I will read in a minute. Um, you know, Gmail is a vastly different way of processing mail than any other client out there. And once you drink that Kool-Aid and accept the labels and the archiving and that sort of stuff, it's really hard to go back. I tried. Um, once you're, once you've been indoctrinated, there's, there's no way to go back. Um, I think, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, internet, Dowdle, this is you. Um, I think you can go to the, uh, the Google, what do they call that? The, uh, labs, isn't it? Google labs. The, the, the project designed to make sure you get all your stuff out. I can't, I'm, I'm blanking on the name oh. of it. Um, yeah, your, your... it's Google, there's, there's a, there's a website where you can specifically download your Google stuff. You can export your contacts. You can download your RSS yeah. reads from Google re. Oh wait, never mind. Um, the yeah. Google liberation front, that's what it is. So Google, Google liberation front, uh, and they will, uh, you will find a site there where I'm pretty sure you can download a zip archive of your emails. I, I could be wrong on that, but I think that you can do that. Um, it's not, um, it's not going to be like a, an inbox, uh, a mailbox file that you can import into something else. It's going to be kind of a useless zip. That's really only for backup purposes. Um, but I think you can do that. Any other comments, guys? Uh, what do you think, Chris, about using a desktop client as opposed to just Gmail? Um, you know, that's kind of a mixed bag. Um, personally, what I do is on my mobile device, my, my laptop, that is strictly just Gmail interface because I don't want to have anything on the laptop that I need to get back out of it. So the laptop has just that. Um, on my desktop, I run Thunderbird every so often in a pop setting, so it downloads everything locally through into Thunderbird. Um, that it's just one of those things. I, I have a calendar event, and every I think it's, I think I have it set once a month. I just pop it open, let it do its download for pop, and then close it. And I don't actually do anything inside of Thunderbird. Um, otherwise, you know, all I'd say ninety percent of my stuff that I do with with Google Mail is done in their web interface. The exception to that is on my tablet. On my tablet, because it's a Fire, the Kindle Fire, it has a horrible job. The, the, the built-in email client and the fact that when I try to go to the mobile email um, on the web browser, it, it's rubbish. It's absolutely horrible to use. What I've found, though, is a program called Canine Mail. And it's in the Kindle store, which means I'm pretty sure it's going to be in the Google store or I don't know if it's on the iTunes store, but it is available freely. And Canine Mail handles the uh, labeling correctly and even will do archiving like it's like you're expecting, you know, like Google expects it to be done. So if you hit the archive button, it then archives it correctly. Uh, you have to enable those extra buttons, but they are in, they are built into the program. So that would be my other thing. If if you're looking for something for your phone, if it's an Android-based phone, you should be able to get the K9 program, and that would do the job fairly accurately. All right. And so one extra thing about the K9. One extra thing about K9. It has a nighttime timer. So if you have your phone set to bleep every time you get an email, you can set the timeline for when 
I'm sleeping at you know eleven o'clock at night till seven in the morning. Don't beep at me for email, which is a nice feature. You know, and I think Richard, you hit upon a great solution there. If you just set it to auto forward to another provider, that's a great way to have a backup. Um, you know, the only thing caveat to that is you need to make sure you log in to your other provider periodically because a lot of them have you know a ninety day or hundred and twenty day automatic deactivation policy. But if you're having everything you receive in Gmail forwarded to Yahoo or MSN or, you know, AOL, then that's a different provider. So chances are good that if one of them goes down, the other one will still be around long enough for you to set up another account somewhere else and forward all that stuff. So that's a very good way to back up. So while the guys were talking, I, I Googled the Google Liberation Front. Their service is called Google Takeout, uh, and it does not include Gmail. It includes a number of other things, but the official Google recommended way to archive your Gmail is to connect to it via POP through an external client. Uh, POP will download everything in your Gmail account. It will take a long time the first time, uh, and then you let it go periodically, and it will just download the updates and then you will have your archive uh, locally. The your uh, your best. Uh, I've just totally lost my train of thought. There, it's about a fifty-fifty, or probably less than that. It's like twenty eighty that you're going to be able to keep your file structure, your label structure, and your folders. Some IMAP clients can handle that kind of. Most POP clients aren't going to be able to at all. The difference, though, is IMAP looks at the server, POP makes a copy, and that's what you're wanting to do. So um, you can you can sort of half have what you want. You can log in with a POP server, download everything, um, and that will happen, but you will probably lose your organization. Then you have to hope that your desktop client has a good search feature, which none of them do, which is why I initially went to Gmail in the first place because I was using Thunderbird and the search feature in Thunderbird Bird sucks rocks. However, it is an order of magnitude better than the search feature in Outlook, which sucks mud. <laughs> <It's>, um, <laughs> once you get used to the fact that you never down uh, delete mail, you just archive it and then have it available for search, it's really hard to go back. So anyway, there, those are our suggestions. Uh, use something uh, like Canine to watch it on your, look at it on your phone, and then if you want a true off-site archive, a POP client is going to be the only way to go. Uh, and then uh, he has a PS to his message. Mark, I can't wait for you to send me a few pounds of that delicious corned beef you made. Uh, Richard must be a follower of mine on Google+. Plus. I, I know I've, I've taken some flack recently for not talking about bacon enough on the show. This isn't bacon, but this is like unto it. It is a cured meat. Um, one of my new favorite things to do is take a big old beef brisket and turn it into corned beef. And uh, I did that this week. I posted some pictures, and man, is it good stuff. Um. That's just not fair. You should be sharing. <laughs> well, you know, um, send me a self-addressed stamped envelope, and I will put a piece of meat in the mail. <laughs> There's just no, especially, Richard, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, you live uh, in England. It's going to be difficult to ship meat to England. Um, so I, what I can do is give you the recipe, and you can go make your own. All you need is... Uh, <laughs> 
two weeks and uh, a five-gallon bucket and enough space in the fridge to keep it, it's simple. It's sort of like just pseudo make, make install. <laughs> or you can just go to the store and buy corned beef. But just quick, he, I'm, I'm learning these. Uh, I'm trying to educate myself in the old world arts of charcuterie, of, of, of cured meats. Uh, the reason it's called corned beef, by the way, is it's a salt cured. Uh, I use a wet brine, but the the typical historical method of doing it is to pack it in salt, and you used rock salt, whose uh, uh, big chunks of rock were about the size and shape of corn kernels, ergo corned beef. So you pack the beef in salt, leave it for 10 to 15 days. It then comes out as corned beef, and it's good stuff. And if you take corned beef and, and then smoke you know. it, it becomes pastrami. So the only difference between pastrami and corned beef is pastrami is smoked corned beef. And pastrami is very yummy. It is indeed. That's one of my favorite meats. Oh, you're making me hungry, Mark. Stop it. <laughs> uh, and I made some killer corned beef hash and served it up alongside some eggs over easy this morning for breakfast. Oh, my gosh. It was good. So there you go. That, uh, Richard, you brought it up. I didn't. So I can't be blamed for the off-topic commentary. <laughs> well, it wasn't off topic because this is listener feedback. That's exactly So that right. was perfectly on topic, Richard. Way to go. And that's it. Richard, you have the last word, at least in terms of the listeners. Um, in, in the way of more words, how about a command line tip? What, what? You have to ask. I was unplugged. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have a chance to do anything. I do my command line tips Friday and Saturday. That's when I find the one I'm going to bring up. When you're out in the middle of nowhere with no internet, it's kind of hard to do research for a command line tip, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I just had to bust you because I see this big section of the notes right there in big bold letters. It says command line tip, and under it uh -huh. is a blank space. How about this? Instead of a command line tip, yeah, I'll bring yeah, up a yeah. I'll bring up a a thought. Um, LXDE has been making a, some little kerfuffle about moving away from GKT or GTK development and moving over to the QT libraries. So that should be interesting to see how things go out from there. So do you just pick some letters and throw <laughs> stuff out? <laughs> no. The no. QRM is moving it's, to the ZXY yeah, over GTK the BRT. <laughs> it's GTK2. Thank you, Donald, for the exact... I knew what I was talking about. I just couldn't remember the two part. I'll have but a yeah, BLT... Hold the mayo. <laughs> it's almost it's a as development good as Mutton lettuce tomato when the mutton is <laughs> nice and sorry. lean and the tomato is so perky. Oh, GTK, by the way, stands for Gnome Toolkit. And it was developed by the guys, uh, Spencer Mattis and Peter Kimball, who wrote GIMP. Uh, when at, they developed GIMP first and later GNOME came along and they used the GIMP toolkit to build GNOME little history for you that's awesomeness i love history and qt is what they use for the kde um interface right. so which is actually the, pronounced the, cute nobody yeah, says it that way but that's cute. what it's supposed to be it's supposed to be pronounced cute so seth but, uh, what do you got for us this week it'll be interesting well i uh i scoured long and hard and i realized that it was impossible to top um, the poop at well 
anyway, it's it, I just couldn't come up with something that awesome. So I what, came up what with what do you top you, poop with? Usually, no. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yourather.com. Y O U R A T H E R dot com. You go there and it simply asks you a question. Like um, when I went there, it says, Would you rather? And your options are be credited with the invention of the wheel or be credited with the invention of the internet. So you pick one. And since we all know Al Gore was invented the internet, we have to choose the other. And then it tells you what percentage of people agreed with you. And then if you want, you can do another question. Would you rather room with Snoop Dogg or would you rather room with Bob Marley? So, um, and you just answer the questions and keep going. So it was kind of cool. You can just see how other people would answer. And some of the questions are funny. Um, some of them are not. Uh, My anyway. question was, would you rather be Matt Damon or Ben Affleck? And poor Ben gets no love. It's 71 to 29% Matt Damon. <laughs> I pulled it up and I was asked, would you rather stop using YouTube or stop using Facebook? Ooh. I chose Facebook because I personally can't stand Facebook. And so did 74% of other people who took this question. That's funny. The next question I got was, would you rather always know when people are lying or always get away with lying? And there are a lot of liars out there because it came in at 5743. Um, One of them I got uh, when I was looking at earlier says, would you rather live near an active volcano or have your family and friends see your complete internet history? An active <laughs> volcano one by one. It's like 99 to one, right? Yeah. It was uh, it was not quite that high, but it was like 79 to 21 or something <laughs> like that. Uh, so anyway, you could just go there and just look at some of the questions and have some fun. You know, this is kind of like um, I'm hoping this one will serve as kind of a palate cleanser uh, so we can uh, get back in. You know, you can't have awesomeness all the time or it ceases to become awesome. Oh, Dowdle got the one. Would you rather use only a Mac or use only a Windows PC? He says he's abstaining from voting on that one. I got that one, and Windows won by a landslide yeah. on that one. So. Here, here's a good one. Here's a good one for our, our audience. Would you rather become a superhero or become a supervillain? Would you rather be James Bond or be Jason Bourne? Ooh, wow. Ooh, that's a good one. I know, Bond gets personally. more chicks, but Bourne could kill you quicker, I guess. I Here's know. one. This isn't on the site, but somebody asked me. It's appropriate for the show. Which would you rather go a year without, cheese or bacon? Ooh. Uh, I'd rather go with a year without cheese. Uh, see, I had, to go, I had to go with bacon. I love bacon, but I can go several days without eating bacon. I eat cheese every day in some form or another. Uh, not me. Would you rather always watch Nicolas Cage movies or always watch Owen Wilson movies? Oh, wow. Neither, oh, that's please. A <laughs> that's a very tough one. Why couldn't so, you put uh, the bunny back in the box? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I guess that's enough of those. Anyway, yourather.com. Go there, have fun, um, annoy your coworkers. Um, and after this one, just remind them that they can try to catch a cat anytime they want to. It's... <laughs> Oh, that one got me just right. Uh, it's a good party game if you're lame and don't have friends and don't drink. 
Uh, <laughs> Daddle says, most of the questions seem to be choices between ways of suffering. <laughs> a, a lot of them are. Yes. So, uh, so that's a listener feedback show. And if we're ever going to have another one of these ever again, we need listener feedback because that was it. I emptied the tank. And the way you can do that is go to elementop.com. Use the contact us button right at the top of the page. And it will spit on a nice spiffy form that you can fill out. Or if you're more an email kind of person, you can send an email to edl at elementop.com. That's everyday Linux, in case you didn't know. That will send an email to the three of us. We will read it. We will discuss it. We will laugh about your bad grammar. And then we will discuss it on the air, maybe. And then if you would also like to be on the show in, in your own dulcet tones, you can uh, dial 559-IAM-OP anywhere in the North American continent and send us uh, a voicemail. Or you can just uh, send me a, an audio file if you live outside the country, and we'll play that. And you can actually share the electrons with us. I started to say airwaves, but as far as I know, we don't go out on any airwaves. But those are the ways you can contact us. Please do. We love hearing from you. Uh, we love uh, the fact that you come up with the content, about half the content for our shows. Also, if there's any particular topics that you would like us to discuss, any, how about an interview? We haven't done an interview in a long time. Somebody you'd like us to interview, don't say Richard Solomon. It'll never happen. Uh, let us know. We will try to uh, get them on the show. If you want to be on the show, you want to raise your hand and say, hey, I think I'm interesting, interesting enough to be an interviewee. Hey, let us know, because if we get hard up enough for topics, we'll take anyone. We even interviewed Dowdle. I mean, come on. So <laughs> uh, we encourage you to, we, we need you. It's not just encourage. We need you out there uh, to, to feedback, to let us know, to contact us and tell us what's on your mind. Also, please continue to spread the word, um, distribute random copies of uh of this show to uh anywhere you uh think it could be you know uh, photobomb somebody's playlist with uh with our show uh spread the word if you happen to be near somebody's windows machine and they happen to have itunes installed or somebody's mac uh find us in the itunes store and leave us a rating and a review it would be uh, greatly appreciated uh, so i think 26 of you have done that so far uh, and we thank each and every one of you for that. We need about 260,000 more to do that. I want to be number one, that dang it. Awesome. I, I want to be number one by a lot. Um, yeah, our next goal is to break into the top 10. So we're getting there. Uh, so I want to be the number one Linux show that isn't about Linux on the internet. So help us do that by spreading the word and, as always, by being a listener. So, uh, is there a lot of competition for that? Out there, <laughs> I think we're, I think it's pretty close. Actually, it, uh, uh, we're, we may already be at number one. Um, and if you have some, and I did broach the subject of maybe changing the show title because maybe it is a bit of a bait and switch. If you have any suggestions, not down the geek hole, uh, let us know. And, uh, we may consider, uh, rebranding the show. I don't think so. I, I, I like Tux in his business suit. It'd be hard pressed to get rid of that. But you know, the, the, um, we do get some reviews and some comments from time to time. Hey, I, you got your peanut butter in my chocolate. You got your non Linux stuff in my Linux show. Uh, so, you know, I understand that, but this is what we got. And we thank you every, uh, every one of you for being here. And we hope to see you next week. Chris, Seth, as always a pleasure to share the, uh, electrons with you. 
And I'm going to say that ends this episode of Everyday.